to the Peace Podcast. I'm John Deere. Thanks so much for taking time to listen to our Pache Benny Peace Podcast. And I hope you will encourage others to listen to them. That'd be a big help. Thanks. At the moment, we're preparing an amazing national conference on nonviolence for August 2020 in New Mexico to mark the 75th anniversary of Hiroshima and Nagasaki with Martin Sheen, Dolores Huerta, Father Richard Brewer, Dr. Erica Chenoweth, and many others. Check out our website and register at www.campaignnonviolence.org. I hope to see you there. So a year ago, I started writing a book on the Psalms called Praise Be Peace, the Psalms of Peace and Nonviolence in a Time of War and Climate Change. It actually just arrived just now. I just got the first copy. It's from uh, 23rd Publications and available at Amazon.com. Well, as you know, there are 150 psalms, about half of them attributed to David, evoking every emotion from devotion and praise to anger and hatred, from vengeance and violence to despair and dread to peace and thanksgiving. Many are liturgical prayers intended for the leader of a Jewish faith community. Some are hymns of praise, others offer thanksgiving, most are individual or communal lamentations. But fundamentally, they're all an ancient cry to God, and as such, they are as relevant today as ever. I think the Psalms teach us that everything depends on God, that God alone is our rock and safety, that with God there is hope and peace for us individually and for humanity. They voice our feelings, our hopes, and longings for God. They articulate our urgent plea for help, for ourselves, for the poor, and for creation. They tap into the depths of our hearts and unleash the contemplative springs within to bring us living water in parched times. As we read the Psalms, we remember that God is God, and we awaken again in a new consciousness of God's abiding presence. With each day of reading the Psalms, with each poetic line, we enter that liminal space where God feels more present, where the Holy Spirit of peace is at work. In that presence, in that abiding, we feel new energy to go forward and serve others and stay involved in the nonviolent struggle for justice and peace. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking, wait a second, aren't the Psalms, like most of the scriptures, full of violence and war? Yes. Many are, as if God were a violent God, and it's our sacred religious duty to go and kill for God. Here's a few awful examples. God will crush the skulls of the enemy. That's Psalm 68, verse 22. Slay my enemies, O God. That's Psalm 59, verse 12. March with our armies, O God. That's Psalm 108, verse 12. Blessed are those who seize your children and smash them against a rock. That's Psalm 137, verse 9. And notice, it's a beatitude. I call it an anti-beatitude. When you think of Jesus' beatitudes of peace, which I did a podcast on a few months ago. So I propose that we never, ever again read any verses that espouse violence or invoke a God of violence and that we focus only on those texts which help us become people of active nonviolence like Jesus. I think that's what he did. My contention is that Jesus was meticulously nonviolent and that he taught and practiced 
total nonviolence. We know that he prayed the Psalms, and he may have even known them by heart. So he must have brought his nonviolence to the Psalms. He must have read the Psalms from his perspective of nonviolence. And we can read them that way, too, through the lens of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. I find if we read the Psalms from Jesus' perspective of nonviolence, they make more sense. They lead us out of our inner violence into the Holy Spirit of peace, out of the culture of violence into the God's realm of nonviolence and working for a new culture of nonviolence. Through them, we can also know God better as the God of peace. I think the Psalms help Jesus claim his radical dependence on God, his dedication to God, and his fearless devotion to God, and they can help us do the same. I figure the Psalms helped him go forward against the Roman Empire and fulfill his mission. And if that is the Christian calling to follow the nonviolent Jesus on his public campaign of nonviolence, then the Psalms can help us too as we try to carry out our own campaigns of creative nonviolence for justice and creation. So reading the Psalms as Jesus read them will help us become more faithful, more devout, more fearless, more secure, more loving, more trusting, and dare I say, more nonviolent. Like Jesus, we will learn to place all our security and all our hope in the God of peace. Now you're probably thinking, well, John, that's a bit of a stretch. How can you suggest we skip the, the Psalms with violence in them? Well, because that's what Bede Griffiths said. You remember Bede Gif Griffiths was the legendary Benedictine monk from England who eventually settled in India where he formed a Christian Benedictine Hindu ashram of total prayer. He spent his life praying through the Psalms every single day. And he, uh, he died in the 1990s, well into his 90s, and just before he died, he published a book on the Psalms where he begged Christians not to read or recite the Psalms of violence. Christians are called to be as nonviolent as Christ, he argued. So we need to avoid anything and everything that promotes violence, including scriptural texts calling for violence and war. Now, B. Griffiths was one of the first major religious figures in modern history to say this, and I think it's time to heed his advice. So here's just a brief quote from him. It has become urgent that we revise the Psalter so that all branding of others as enemies or wicked or sinners deserving no pity or mercy should be removed. When one considers the incalculable harm which has resulted from this habit of mind in the church, as seen in the Inquisition, the Crusades, the wars of, the wars of religion, and the persecution of heretics, it is clear that a revision of this kind is urgently needed." Unquote. The point, he said, is to practice the teachings of the nonviolent Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. So in my new book, Praise Be Peace, I go through about 40 psalms, and I focus on two kinds, the anti-war psalms and those that celebrate creation. And I suggest that they can help us in our work to resist war and abolish war and nuclear weapons, as well as to re reconnect with Mother Earth while we try to do our part to resist environmental destruction. So today, let me look at five of them, and let's start with Psalm 33, which has always been one of my favorites. Here's a few lines, quote, A king is not saved by a mighty army, nor a warrior delivered by great strength, 
Useless is the war horse for safety, its great strength no sure escape, but the eyes of the God of peace are upon the reverent, upon those who hope for God's gracious help. Wow. Psalm 33 is a hymn of praise to the God of peace and a warning to all of us who place any hope or trust in the false gods of war. You can't serve both the God of peace and the weapons of war, it says. It's one or the other. Show reverence to the God of peace and live in peace, gratitude, and joy, or show reverence to the weapons of war and their false security and die. That's the message I get. It's more radical than any spiritual writing you'll find today. Wait a minute, you're thinking. Wait, a king, an emperor, a president, they are saved by a mighty army by bombs and drones and trident submarines and nuclear weapons. That's the logic of every nation, every military, every war. In fact, the God of peace cannot save us. Only our weapons and warriors can save us. This is what we've been taught and what we hear preached and why we wave the flag and why we pay taxes to the Pentagon and why we threaten to destroy the planet, why we've spent trillions of dollars on warfare instead of health care, schools, affordable housing, food for the hungry, and environmental cleanup. This is what most people believe. Might makes right. Violence saves us. War is the will of God. Our weapons are our only protection. Not long ago, an, a U.S. archbishop said these exact words to me, quote, God cannot save us. Only nuclear weapons can protect us. They are our only hope. It was incredible. That statement reveals a total lack of faith in the God of peace. The good news, though, is that statistical research now proves that Jesus was right in the Sermon on the Mount. Where nonviolent conflict resolution is used, there's a much higher likelihood of a more just, peaceful outcome and a longer-lasting democracy. In other words, war doesn't work, peacemaking and creative nonviolence work. Psalm 33 says that reliance on war, funding for war, and waging war are futile. If you place your hope in war, then know that you're not placing your hope in the God of peace. If you trust in weapons, then know that you're not trusting in the God of peace for your security. This truth is presented like a law of nature, like the law of gravity. gravity. And Jesus picks up on this message when he says in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you live by the sword, the weapon, the bomb, you will die by the sword, the weapon, and the bomb. So do not live by the sword. Live in my peace, he says, and you will live. This is the first requirement of the spiritual life, and it's the politics of the spiritual life. Renounce warfare and take up the way of peace, and you will enter the fullness of life. Here are a few more lines. Let all who dwell in the world show reverence. The God of peace foils the plan of the nations. From heaven, the God of peace looks down and observes the whole human race, surveying from the royal throne all who dwell on earth. The one who fashioned the hearts of them all knows all their works. So this Psalm 33 is saying that God, the God of peace sees the violence we commit and the wars we wage. Um, and it's summoning us to get on the side of the God of peace. And the specific word it uses is reverence. I love that word. It was actually Albert Schweitzer's favorite word. I looked it up. Webster's defines reverence as a feeling or attitude of deep respect, 
love and awe for something sacred, veneration, or a manifestation of this respect, love, and awe, unquote. So we're invited to show reverence toward God, reverence toward one another, and reverence toward all of creation. Here's the conclusion of Psalm 33. Our soul waits for the God of peace, who is our help and our shield. In the God of peace, our hearts rejoice. In your holy name, God of peace, we trust. May your kindness, God of peace, be upon us. We have put all our hope in you. Isn't that lovely? Psalm 33 suggests that if we turn away from the culture of war, renounce our reliance on weapons, and practice a deeper trust in the God of peace by living the nonviolence of Jesus, in the process, along the way, the kindness of God will be upon us, and we will rejoice. Isn't that beautiful? Okay, let's turn to Psalm 46. Here's a few lines. Come and see the works of the God of peace who has done awesome deeds on earth, who stops wars to the ends of the earth, breaks the war bow, splinters the war spear, and burns the war shields with fire, who says, be still and know that I am the God of peace. Wow, have you ever heard that? The God of peace is stopping wars, dismantling weapons, and is at hard at work making peace. This is what God is doing, according to Psalm 46. I don't know about you, but I've rarely heard anyone talk about this anti-war God in my whole life, except my great friend Daniel Berrigan. I do hear a lot of people talk about some kind of false God who blesses war, supports our wars, and wants us to beg him to bless the troops. But this is not the God of Psalm 46 or the God of the nonviolent Jesus. And this is critical to understand. It's at the heart of everything. Remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says God is a peacemaker who practices universal nonviolent love toward all humanity and all creation by letting the sun shine in the good and the bad and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. The scandal of Christianity is that according to Jesus, God is nonviolent. And if that's true, and there's nothing passive about nonviolence, then God is hard at work trying to stop our wars. Now we're getting somewhere. Now you're probably thinking, oh, come on, John, there's no way. If God's so peaceful, why doesn't God end our wars, dismantle our weapons, and make peace? Well, I didn't make this stuff up. That's what it says in Psalm 46. Go and read it. Psalm 46 insists that, in fact, the God of peace is at work right now trying to end the war and trying to make everyone nonviolent. We're the ones who are stuck in war, who like war, who wage war and build weapons and foster hatred, especially us Christians, not God. And there's a line in the psalm that says, go and see the works of God. I, I like that. If you want to witness God's disarming action, you need to get out of your comfort, comfort zone and go where the nonviolent action is. If you get involved with the nonviolent struggle for justice and peace with those resisting war and building a grassroots movement of disarmament and justice, I promise you, you will see the works of the God of peace all around you. I've certainly experienced God at work for peace all over the world, especially in all the war zones I've been in and in all the jails I've been in. 
Oddly enough, that's where I experience God. God is found on the margins, not in the center of power. God is not sitting back watching TV. God's out taking action. God is at the bottom, not at the top. God is among the least, not among the first. God's on the outskirts of the empire, not in the center of it. So if you want to see God and God's work for peace, you have to go to the margins and the edges. And there you will see the God of peace hard at work disarming the world. So Psalm 46 says, God, quote, stops wars to the ends of the earth, breaks the war bow, splinters the war speed, spear, and burns the war shields with fire, unquote, that God is trying to get us to beat our swords into plowshares and practice God's way of nonviolence. So my question, do you want this God? You know, I think it's, it's not only... Do we believe in that God? Do we, do we really want a God of peace and nonviolence? And I would be slow to answer that. I'd sit with that question a bit. I think we're so darn used to this false image of a violent God that we can't imagine a God of peace and have given up some degree of hope because, well, God has to be violent. As my friend Dara Williams jokes, well, that's why we pay him. Um, maybe that's why the Psalms ends by saying, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am the God of peace. If we take time to be still and peaceful over the course of our lives, I think the psalm is right. We will get to know God better as a gentle, loving, peaceful, nonviolent God. Psalm 46 encourages us to know God as the living God of peace and therefore to join God's global peace and disarmament movement. Okay, let's take a, a brief look at Psalm 85, which, was, which is one of the most beautiful psalms of peace, if not the most beautiful one. Quote, I will listen for the word of the God of peace. Surely the God of peace will proclaim peace to God's people, to the faithful, to those who trust in the God of peace. And love and truth will embrace. Justice and peace will kiss. Truth will spring from the earth. Justice will look down from heaven. Wow. I, I think Psalm 85 is one of the most beautiful prayer poems in the Bible. But maybe it's just one of the most beautiful prayer poems ever. I mean, it's worthy of Shakespeare and Bob Dylan. <laughs> it combines a prayer for God's mercy upon humanity, our hope in God and God's word of peace, and a vision of what peace might look like. The text instructs us in the basics of prayer. We sit in silent meditation, ask the God of peace to speak, wait for God to speak, listen and hear what God has to say, which is always a message of peace, and then try to fulfill that word by going forth as peacemakers. I invite you to really sit with Psalm 85, because it, it calls us to take God's holy word of peace to heart. And as we do, I think it helps us keep hope alive in the coming of peace, which, is, which it says always means truth, love, and justice. Isn't that wonderful? So as I said earlier, many of the Psalms praise the God of peace for the wonders of creation, for all the creatures, from the sea and the oceans to the mountains and rivers to the birds and the fish and all the animals. As I write in my new book, they resemble St. Francis's canticle, Brother, Son, and Sister Moon. 
So in this terrible time of catastrophic climate change, I suggest praying through these particular psalms, the ones that celebrate creation, because they can help us reconnect with the earth and the creator and give us new strength to do our part in the grassroots movement and also will help us sustain our hope. The other day, young Greta Thunberg of uh, Sweden spoke at the World Economic Forum at Davos and denounced all the world's elite for not working immediately to stop climate change. She's such a brilliant speaker. She demanded all the companies, banks, institutions, and governments in attendance immediately halt all investments in fossil fuel exploration and extraction and fossil fuel subsidies and divest from fossil fuels. Quote, she said, we don't need lower emissions. And that's very powerful. You know, we don't need a low emission economy, she said. We have to stop all our emissions now if we have any chance to stay the, below the 1.5 target, uh, 1.5 degree target set in the Paris Accords. She said, our house is still on fire. Your inaction is fueling the flames by the hour. We are still telling you panic. Act as if you loved your children above all else. Wow. It was in that spirit a few weeks ago that I attended one of the weekly Fire Drill Friday protests in Washington, D.C. at the U.S. Capitol. And I was arrested with Jane Fonda and 140 others for blocking the Hart Senate office building and calling for climate justice. We were handcuffed and taken in the paddy wagon off to a warehouse where we sat all day. And Jane Fonda says, we have to act as if our house is on fire. We need to listen to young Greta and get out of our comfort zones and take public action. As I, write, as I wrote in my last book, They Will Inherit the Earth, Peace and Nonviolence in a Time of War and Climate Change, we all need to participate with a global grassroots movement of nonviolence to end war, seek climate justice, and help create a new culture of nonviolence. The Psalms which celebrate creation can help us keep going as we do our bit in a spirit of hope and peace. So there's many I could cite, but I'm, I just picked one typical one, and I'll read a few verses from that. This is from Psalm 65. O God, our Savior, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of those far off across the sea, you are robed in power. You set up the mountains by your might. You still the roaring seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. Distant people stand in awe of your marvels. The places of morning and evening you make resound with joy. You visit the earth and water it, making it abundantly fertile. God's streams are filled with water. You supply their grain. Thus do you prepare it. You drench its, you drench its plowed furrows and level its ridges. With showers you keep it soft, blessing its young sprouts. You adorn the year with your bounty. Your paths drip with fruitful rain. The meadows of the wilderness also drip with rain. The hills are robed with joy. The pastures are clothed with flocks. The valleys blanketed with grain, and they all cheer and sing for joy. Isn't that beautiful? Psalm 65, like dozens of others, uh, celebrates creation. 
It's this one says, in effect, you, God, have been creating and tending to Mother Earth since the beginning of time, and you have never stopped. You are still working away, taking care of the mountains and hills, the oceans and seas, the trees and fields and streams and meadows, not to mention all the creatures and humans. Well, these days we're all grieving over our destructive behavior that has brought on catastrophic climate change. But we don't want to become paralyzed. These beautiful creation psalms, I submit, can help us celebrate creation and the Creator, even as we're trying to do our part to stop the fossil fuel industry and clean up the earth. There are many other similar psalms which can lift our spirits in the face of climate change. Finally, I'd like to look at Psalm 34, which has always been one of my favorite, which I suggest has four parts. I'm not sure if that's true, but that's how I break it down. And um, I've been studying this for 40 years, and I invite you to as well. The first part is an invitation to join in permanent praise, blessing, and thanks for the God of peace. Quote, I will bless the God of peace at all times. God's praise shall always be in my mouth. My soul will glory in the God of peace that the poor may hear and be glad. Magnify the God of peace with me. Psalm 34 is like the Magnificat. In fact, I bet a lot of the Gospels comes from it. It says, spend every day of your life from now on blessing the God of peace. We bless, praise, glorify, honor, and adore the God of peace and God's gift of peace. That means, of course, we do not honor War, hatred, revenge, resentments, domination, or empire. We stay focused on the God of peace at all times, all through the day, from now on, as best we can. I think if we do that, as the saints have shown us, we actually will feel more peaceful and learn to radiate more peace. And over time, maybe even without knowing it, become real instruments of God's peace. The second part of Psalm 34 says, God helps us in our time of need. And so it urges us to call upon and rely upon the God of peace morning, noon, and night. It's very helpful instruction. So here's a few lines. I sought the God of peace who answered me and delivered me from all my fears. In my misfortune, I called and the God of peace heard and saved me from all my distress. So look to the God of peace, that you may be radiant with joy. Learn to savor how good the God of peace is. Blessed are those who take refuge in God. Those who seek the God of peace lack no good thing. Wow, it's just always moving and inspiring. It says, if we trust in the God of peace and turn to the God of peace in good times and bad, God will help us, period and deliver us, and save us. That's the message and the promise. I suppose, I've always thought, well, why should God help us if we don't ask for help? That's my kindergarten way of looking at it. You know, God was like, well, if you don't ask me, you don't really need me or want me. But, you know, we, we need to ask for God's help. And we're promised that God delivers all those who turn toward God, but especially the poor, the oppressed, the brokenhearted, and the crushed, which means, of course, all of us. 
That means, of course, that we too, from now on, are called to be on the side of the poor, the oppressed, the brokenhearted, and the crushed. So if we call upon God, God will help us. And you may have note, noticed the word refuge there. Uh, take refuge in God. As I was studying the Psalms for my book, I noticed that that word is used more than any other word in the Psalms. Isn't that interesting? There's, I would say, probably 30 Psalms about taking refuge in God. So it's a very important message. It's a beautiful word. There's another beautiful word here. Uh, we were invited to savor how good the God of peace is. I love the word savor. That could be one way to describe life or the spiritual life. From now on, we are people who savor the goodness of God. We savor the peace of God. Isn't that lovely? Well, the third part lists a few essential instructions on how to do all this and how to live well and how to be centered on the God of peace and how to love life and how to take delight in good days. Isn't that great? So here are the instructions. Quote, Come, children, and listen to me. I will teach you awe for the God of peace. Who among you loves life and takes delight in prosperous days? Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Okay, the first instruction. Do not speak evil or lies. In other words, try only to speak goodness, kindness, truth, and love. Do not spread the culture's untruth or reinforce evil, and therefore don't hurt others. Use your words wisely, nonviolently, not, and uh, mindfully, which means practicing nonviolent communication. I find this very hard. I've never been good at this, and I work at it. Everything we say, as long as everything we do, has to be nonviolent. Our nonviolence has to run so deep that the words we speak only spread love, kindness, compassion, truth, and peace. Or in other words, from now on, we only speak the language of peace and love and truth. And in doing so, we serve and honor the God of peace. That's very helpful. I'm just unpacking these teachings. The next one, turn from evil and do good. Well, this is the fundamental of the spiritual life. Turn from evil and do good. We could add St. Paul's addendum, which is um, try to overcome evil with goodness. So we do good, we turn from evil, and we seek to transform evil, which is all systemic violence, into goodness through the power of nonviolent love. And, you know, I was thinking a lot about this in the book, and all I'll say here is that I come to the conclusion that goodness is the pursuit of peace at every level. And Martin Luther King, you know, the week before he died, he's so brilliant, he called us to start organizing goodness. Anyway, the third teaching, the culmination, seek peace and pursue it. Well, there it is. That's your life mission. Seeking peace and pursuing peace is another way to put the spiritual life. This is the meaning, purpose, and wisdom of life. To seek peace and pursue it, of course, that also means to seek God and pursue the God of peace. 
We're called to make peace with ourselves, to make peace with the God of peace, to make peace with every human being on earth and all the creatures and Mother Earth. As peace seekers, we take time every day for the God of peace. We practice peace. Well, that means you have to practice meditation as an ordinary part of our day-to-day lives. In meditation, we just sit quietly and settle down into the God of peace because all the religions teach that meditation is the doorway to eternal peace. So for peace seekers, it has to become an essential ingredient to our daily lives. And over time, the God of peace becomes the center of our lives. And peace becomes our ordinary day-to-day way of life, even amidst all the turmoil and distress uh, of the world. We go forth from our meditation in peace, to make peace, and serve the God of peace. So to seek peace and pursue peace means, of course, just for the record, we do not seek war or pursue war. That means we non-cooperate with the culture of war as best we can, as far as you can. We oppose and resist our culture's wars, and we speak out against war, and we encourage people we know not to go to war or to quit the military. And we're always trying to promote nonviolent conflict resolution. And we also try to stop the war against Mother Earth and the poor. We do our part to support the global grassroots movements of peace, justice, and nonviolence. The combination of these wise teachings form the basics of gospel nonviolence, I think. Speak the truth, turn from evil, do good, and seek peace. If we seek peace and pursue it, as Psalm 34 teaches, we will move closer to the God of peace. So the end is the fourth part of Psalm 34, and it again describes the nature of God as the living God of peace. Here's a quote. The God of peace has eyes for the just and ears for their cry. God's face is against evildoers to wipe out their memory from the earth. When the just cry out, the God of peace hears and rescues them from all distress. The God of peace is close to the brokenhearted and saves those whose spirit is crushed. Many are the troubles of the just, but the God of peace delivers them all. So it's saying God sees the just, hears the cry, turns God's face against evildoers, rescues those in distress, is close to the brokenhearted, saves those who are crushed, delivers the just from all trouble. Well, this is a beautiful promise. This is action. God is on the side of the just, the poor, the broken, the oppressed, the peacemaker, at work liberating and healing them all, which means God is on the side of justice and peace. So altogether, Psalm 34 summons us to trust the God of peace, serve the God of peace, praise the God of peace, and spend our lives making peace. And that way we really are, as the Beatitudes promise, the sons and daughters of the God of peace. Well, I hope this has been helpful. I'm sorry if it's too long. Uh, In conclusion, I just invite you to pray through the Psalms of peace and hear their call to work to end war, and celebrate and honor the creator and creation. And um, use these psalms of peace and creation to help you become better peacemakers. I hope, too, you will order and get my new book, Praise Be Peace, and I hope you'll like it. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. God bless you, and peace be with you. (laughs) 